Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, music nerds. Welcome to season two of the Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast. I am your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio here in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a Canadian guitarist, songwriter, producer, and engineer, and I've been living and working here in Nashville for the last four years. A couple of years back, I decided to reach out to some of the amazing musicians, engineers, and producers I've met along the way to learn some of their more in-depth stories than what I'd been hearing elsewhere. So between March and August of this year, I'll be releasing a new conversation every Wednesday with someone who I feel has been involved with creating great recorded music. Feel free to reach out to me or leave comments at www.stevedawson.ca. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for free on iTunes. Now, let's get down to another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Greetings, fellow music nerds and listeners. Welcome to Music Makers and Soul Shakers Season 2. I'm glad you're back and ready to jump in with me to a whole new set of guests and interviews as we delve ever deeper into the mysterious world of music making. Thank you so much for listening and all your feedback that I've been getting. It's really appreciated to hear from so many people, and it helps to get motivated to do more of these shows for you. Um, I'd like to thank my cohorts in Nerdville who help out with these shows, specifically Jeremy Holmes, who helps me with the research on uh, a lot of the guests, and Michael Glusak, who is helping with some of the editing and music placement from his room at Berklee College of Music in Boston, my old stomping grounds. And as always, you can connect with me and the show at my website, which is stevedawson.ca. Uh, you can make comments there, and if you feel so inclined to contribute to the show with a donation of any sort, that's really the only way we have of keeping the show going. It's uh, quite easy if you go to the website and there's a podcast page and there's links there. Um, if you haven't done so already, please also head over to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. It's free and it helps to get the word out there. All right, well, let's get started. I like to think of the history of American roots music in, in a number of what I think of as zones, uh, each one being a hot spot for a certain scene that kicked out a number of bands or artists at one time. In some cases, it's a studio like Motown or Stax, and in some cases, it's a city at a certain time. And Los Angeles, of course, has had many of those times. Uh, we explored some of that last, last season with some of my guests like Hal Blaine um, in the 50s and 60s, Joe Henry in a more modern era, and uh, uh, musicians like Jay Belleros as well. 
But there's another era that I find fascinating, and that is the L.A. of the early 1980s. And at that time, there was an explosion of great bands around that were rooted in blues and rock and roll and country, but they also had a punk rock edge and energy that defined them. I'm talking about bands like X, Los Lobos, The Beat Farmers, and the band that today's guest was in, The Blasters. Dave Alvin grew up in Downey, California, and has an amazing story to tell about growing up in that area and being around the last hurrah of the first generation of great blues and jazz artists. He got to see it all firsthand, and it seeped into his brain as he learned to write and play. Along with his brother Phil, Dave and the Blasters created a string of killer energetic rock and roll records that are a vivid portrait of the L.A. that wasn't the focus of the mainstream at the time. Dave went on to record a number of great solo albums as well, and recently has collaborated again with his brother Phil on a couple of um, duo recordings. Most recently, their new album, which is called Lost Time. Make sure you go pick up your vinyl copy wherever records are sold. I had the good fortune of meeting Dave and getting a chance to work with him about uh, six years ago or so when I was doing a, a tribute project to a string band that I love called the Mississippi Sheiks. And Dave was very generous and, and joined us up in Vancouver for a big blowout concert. It was great to hang out with him and he had a terrific energy and, and brought so much to that night and that concert. And I'll never forget getting that chance to play with him and hang with him a little bit those nights in Vancouver. Dave still is uh, out constantly touring on the road with his band The Guilty Ones or sometimes doing duo shows with Phil. And recently he's also been out uh, doing some duo shows with Jimmy Dale Gilmore. So make sure you go see him in whatever format you get the chance to. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Dave Alvin. Hey, is that Steve? Yeah, it is, man. How are you? I'm good, man. How's the connection? Uh, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. You're at home right now? Yeah, it's going okay. You know, it's uh, not too cold. Yeah, it's a little freezing here, actually. Yeah, I remember when I was uh, attempting to live there, and then the, the weather changed. And in those days, I, I didn't have a car out there. And I took that as a sign to head back to California. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know you ever uh, you ever um, set up shop here in Tennessee. Was that a long-term thing? No one else knows either. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was there for about three months. Oh, okay. That was enough for you? Yeah, it was, uh, are we interviewing or are we? We're in, man. We're on. We're going. Oh, we're on? Yeah, no, it was like in the, it was uh, the, uh, 1989 or so. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah, and I lived on um, a little condo on um, 16th or 17th. Okay. Just and uh, yeah, it was me and a, me and a guitar player. Uh-huh. guy uh, who was the caretaker of this little condominium building, you know, a little two-story thing, house-like. Yeah. But neither he or I, it was the low point of my of my life, actually. And, really? Um, yeah, neither he or I had any money, so I had, a, I had an air mattress and a uh, <laughs> $9 folding table from, uh, <laughs> from some Target kind of store couple packs of smokes oh yeah well, that yeah that for sure <laughs> and i had a i had a ghetto blaster and we had two metal folding chairs and that's that was all that was in that apartment and you know a couple of guitars hey what else do you need man yeah kind of and i I'd, <laughs> I'd walk i'd walk every day over to my publisher's office and 
sit in the co-write room and I'd co-write songs with uh, some great writers, you know, uh, Michael uh-huh. Woody, yeah. um, Leroy Preston and, and uh, some others, you know, and, uh, and then other, a couple other writers like Mickey Jepp, we just decided, screw it, let's go drink beer, you know? <laughs> um, but it, yeah, it was a weird time, you know, because... Um, that whole co-write world doesn't really sound like something that you fit into all that well. I do and I don't, you know. Yeah, I, I've yeah. co-written I've co-written with, um, you know, like about six or seven songs with Tom Russell, which, which yeah, worked right. particularly well. Yeah, And I've written songs with other people. It's just, you know, what I realized when I was you know, in Nashville was what had happened was, uh, Dwight Yoakam had recorded long white Cadillac, a song of mine. Yeah. Right. And so then the, the guys at my publishing company, bug, uh, music, they, they said, you know, you ought to go to Nashville. Now that now you got a Nashville hit under your belt, you know, blah, uh-huh. blah, blah. And I had already been there a couple of years earlier when I had had my first solo record released out of, um, Epic, on Epic Nashville, CBS Nashville. And so I had a vague idea of, of what the town was about, but I did it anyway because I just, I was kind of at my wits end mm-hmm. and, and I thought, well, maybe I can write, you know, something that will make a lot of money or a couple of things that will make a lot sure. of money. And, and in that period of time, you know, the, the hottest ticket was to try to get uh, a cover, you know, one of your songs covered by Randy Travis or George Strait were the two biggest stars. Yeah. And so, yeah, you know, I sat around with some great writers and we wrote crappy songs. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, none of them got covered by George Strait or Randy Travis, to say the least. But yeah, once it started getting cold and I realized, you know, I'm pretty shy. So it's not like I'm out working it, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. I'm more the run and hide kind of guy. The introvert. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, you know, if, if alcohol's involved, I'm I'm an extrovert. <laughs> but if there's no alcohol, I'm I'm extremely shy. So yeah, when it started getting cold and I didn't have a car, and I just yeah, that sucks, man. Yeah, I just decided, you know, I I don't belong here. They don't care whether I'm here or not. And I belong, you know, I belong in California. Um, yeah, I've been I've been enjoying a lot your your new um, collaborations with your brother again. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, it's pretty wicked. Um, so I'm, I'm just curious about how that's all going. Um, uh, you've made um, the Brunzi record, I don't know, two years ago, maybe. And then you've got this new record out. Um, mm-hmm. It's such a great pairing. But I know that you guys have had a complex relationship, shall we say, over the years. Um, and so I'm just wondering how that's all going these days. Like, are you planning to do a bunch of stuff with Phil or is this like just something you're doing right now and then you're going back to solo or what's the, what's the status with you and Phil? Well, it's a little bit of both. Uh, uh-huh. we're going to, we're going to continue doing the, the Dave and Phil dog and pony thing, you know, <laughs> and, uh, which I love doing, you know, it, yeah. it makes me very happy for the past, yeah, two and a half years or so I've kind of let that side of my personality not disappear, but it took a backseat to uh-huh. play with playing with my brother. And, right. um, part of the issue is, uh, when he, you know, we worked pretty much nonstop and when we weren't working and say, I'd get a week off or so my brother actually would go then have to go out with his band, the blasters yeah. to play. And I just decided earlier this year, you know, it was kind of like, well, when we finish our gigs and in, in November, 
you know, I'll give my brother a little break. <laughs> I know the blasters <laughs> won't give him a break, but right. I'll give him a little break. So his health is still, his health is still fragile. Uh-huh. And, uh-huh. um, you know, so I'm kind of in a catch 22 of, you know, I love playing with my brother. I love, um, yeah, it's just, it makes me giggle, you know? Right. Right. And, um, and on the other hand, I don't want to kill my brother. You know, you guys, and you guys don't kind of, you guys don't pound the shit out of each other every night anymore. No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. In fact, we only had we only had one on both albums, both the uh, the Bill Brunsey uh, Common Ground album, and then the the next one, the Lost Time album. We only argued once, uh-huh. and and I hate to admit it, but my brother was right. Uh oh, what was that about? Well, we argued over this big Bill Brunsey song called "How You Want It Done." And sure. we argued over the correct way of playing it. And uh, we kind of, it was a little bit of the old days. Yeah, yeah. And just a little bit. And and God damn it if he wasn't right, you know. <laughs> and we were arguing over an F-sharp note. And I was saying that the F-sharp wasn't important. And my uh-huh. brother was saying, yes, it is. The F-sharp mm-hmm. sets up everything. And we argued back and forth, and then then I finally kind of had to shyly and modestly, or not modestly, shyly and shamefully admit that, uh, oh, yeah, you're right. (laughs) You kind of do need the F-sharp note in that run. That's very big of you, Dave. You know, the thing about the Blasters was we all all grew up together, you know, including including Lee Allen, the the great New Orleans Northern Blues tenor sax player. I'd known Lee since I was 13. Okay. So we, we had all, every single one of us grew up together, you know? Yeah. And so because of that, uh, you know, when you're in a band with guys from your hometown that are, you know, it's basically a band of five, six brothers, you know? Right. right. So it wasn't just me and Phil going at it. It was, you know, <laughs> on Tuesday, it would be the drummer versus the bass player. On Wednesday, it'd be me versus the piano player. On Thursday, it would be the piano player, me versus my brother. You know, it's it just, I have a great band, uh, Lisa Pankratz on drums and Brad Fordham on bass and Chris Miller yeah. on guitar. And we don't argue about anything. And if I say, okay, we're going to do this with a slightly, I don't know, calypso feel. They go, uh, okay. Yeah, that's good to have. In a band full of hometown brothers. Okay, we're going to do this with a slightly Calypso feel. Go to hell! You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not doing that, you know. And I'll, I'll come to punches, you know. You you guys are from Downey, California. And mm-hmm. um, is that where everyone in the Blasters was from originally? Like, were you all in, in that town? Gene Taylor is actually from the border of Downey and Norwalk. Okay. And uh, he had a little, his family had a little farm there back when there were still farms and stuff in that area. Yeah. And um, so Gene technically is a Norwalk guy, but technically he played with Downey guys. So that made him a Downey guy. He lived on the Downey, he lived on the Downey side of the San Gabriel River. Okay. So yeah, he's a Downey guy. So yeah, we all grew up together. And then Lee Allen, he lived about, I guess, would be five six miles away over in South Central LA. How much older than you would he have been? Lee was, well, when I met him, he was probably in his late 40s. You know? And you were you were a teenager or what? Yeah, just like 13 okay. years old, yeah. And he's a, a legendary dude. Just like, what, what was he doing in Downey? He wasn't in Downey proper. He was in South Central LA. He okay. had left New Orleans. You know, he did all the, for those of your listeners that don't know who Lee Allen is, 
he played the tenor sax solos on all the great uh, Little Richard and Pat Stalin records out of yeah, it's huge, man. Cosmo, huge. Yeah, Cosmo Matassa Studio in New Orleans with Earl Palmer and and everybody. And um, so, yeah, just about any record made in New Orleans from about 1955 to 1960, the tenor sax solos, Lee Allen. Mysterious circumstances, he had to leave New Orleans. Okay. And uh, I think it involved a woman. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> he moved to California. And so, yeah, it's a long story about how we all met, but we all met. My brother Phil and I were following around, um, I mean, literally following around uh, the great blue shouter, Big Joe Turner. Yeah, man. And because uh, Big Joe was doing all these gigs, and this is about 1969, uh-huh. um, Big Joe was doing these uh, shows with the Johnny Otis Orchestra, which at that time was just an amazing, amazing band, you know, full horn section, the whole bit. <clears throat> so we followed them around like deadheads, you know, but we were little kids. Just around the LA area, or was it yeah. Um, yeah. all over California? Yeah. What grabbed you about that band? Like, what was the thing that knocked you out about them that made you want to follow them? Well, the band had, it was like, it was a real R&B review. Yeah. So you would have, um, uh, first off, the band was great. You know, I can tell you most of them. The only guy whose name I don't remember is the drummers. Uh-huh. And, but I can tell you, he was the drummer for a psychedelic band in the 60s called Kaleidoscope that oh, yeah. David Lindley was Yeah, Lindley was in that, right. Yeah, so it was the drummer from Kaleidoscope. Shuggy Otis was on guitar. Nice. The bass player was the, the hippest-looking white guy I ever knew, named, a guy named Shoot Bradshaw, uh-huh. who was both a great bass player and a great guitarist. And then it was Johnny Otis doing keyboards and vibes. Um, the sax section uh, was Preston Love. Uh, Big Jim Wynn would be playing baritone. Preston Love would be playing tenor. And the trombone player named Gene, the mighty Flea Connors, and then sometimes it'd be augmented with Clifford Scott uh-huh. on um, on tenor sax as well. You know who did the tenor sax on Hockey Talk by Bill Doggett. Nice. And so it was just a great band, and they had they had arrangements and everything. So it wasn't like a loose like, oh, it's just the blues, man. Play whatever. Pretty rocking, right? It was tight. It was a yeah. tight friggin' band, and so they'd come out. You know, they do a couple songs and they bring up. Um, uh, they had a great blues singer, female blues singer named Margie Evans, uh-huh. and she she do like three songs and they bring out a, a soul singer named uh, Delmar Mighty Mouth Evans, uh-huh. no relation to Margie. And then they bring out Eddie Cleanhead Vincent, who was a sweetheart oh, of the man. Yeah. And then there would be Big Joe Turner, and this is Big Joe when when he was still standing. He wasn't. Okay. Uh, you know, all these guys were still in their prime. They were at the right. tail end of their prime, but right. still in it. And then after Big Joe would be T Bone Walker. Was T Bone playing with a full with the full band, the full horn section, and everything as well? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. It was just the, yeah, it was the same band for everybody. You know, it was oh, the Johnny Orchestra. Then they'd bring up everybody one by one. And would they play every night? Like, were you seeing these guys on a nightly basis? Pretty much. Man, that's that's you college know? and high school and elementary school all at, all in one. <laughs> yeah, you know, when I was about thirteen, I got to see I got to see Jimi Hendrix twice. Wow, where was that? Well, one was at the Devonshire Downs Pop Festival, uh-huh. with um, what they called the Newport Pop Festival, which was strictly a jam. It was Jimi Hendrix with the pre band of Gypsies. He had had some kind of bad experience the night before at this festival with the experience. Okay. And then he just came back to make up for whatever the bad experience was. 
and play for an hour and a half. And at the same time, the electric flag was supposed to play, but Bloom, Mike Bloomfield had quit like, two <laughs> days before. Oh, no. So it was like Buddy Miles was playing drums. Uh, it was the horn section from the electric flag. I think it was Harvey Brooks on bass. Yeah, sure. So anyway, and then the next gig, I saw him like three months later. He played with um, Jimi Hendrix, played with Mitch Mitchell on drums and Billy Cox on bass at the Forum. Okay. Right, I know that era, yeah. I had seen that, and that, you know, seeing Jimi Hendrix changed my life, you know, in, in a variety of ways. But then following that up with seeing Big Joe Turner and T-Bone Walker with a full rehearsed orchestra. Yeah. You know, that wasn't just a throw-together jam thing of guys right. that could barely, barely play. I mean, this was the shit, you know? Right, yeah. That's incredible. You see those two different approaches to playing the blues and uh yeah it just changed your life you know so and then when you realize oh big joe turner doesn't live that far away from us uh-huh. and so you could see him say on a friday or saturday night at, at, a, at a place called the Ashgrove, where he you know they'd be playing in front of you know 300 people you know jammed into that club and then on uh, the wednesday night you could go to a place like the york club been on Central Avenue in Florence, mm-hmm. around in there, mm-hmm. and see either, you know, you can see Big Joe Turner singing to 30 people at awesome. a bar. Yeah. And, um, just so, like he would do solo shows as well? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 You know, I mean, it was, a, it was, you know, this was the tail end of that kind of music, um, you know, that kind of urban or, or, Jump blues, urban blues kind of thing yeah. was still community music. It wasn't museum music. It was community music. There were still people right. in the community going out at night. This music spoke to that community, you know? Uh-huh. So it wasn't like a, like a relic, even, you know, right. it was, you know. It was vital. It was happening. Yeah, it was yeah. still happening. You know, like I said, right. these guys were the tail end of their prime, but they were still in their prime. And, mm-hmm. and you know, when you, when you saw Big Joe Turner stand, and sing and all the um, the the gestures and uh, and articulations that he would do and that the with his hands and with his arms and with his eyes yeah. and the way he would sway his body a certain way you know these were all for lack of a better word this you know it th- these were entertainments yeah he was yeah. entertaining people and uh, but also just the sheer physical power of the man. And then back that up with a great band like Johnny Otis had. And it's just like, wow. Deadly. <laughs> you know? Deadly. And it, it was really, you know, when I saw Jimi Hendrix, it was like, this is music from another planet. Yeah. You know, this yeah. is, but when I saw Big Joe Turner with the Johnny Otis Orchestra, it was like, you know, this is music from the earth. Right. And, you know, it might be an industrial earth, but it's earth, <laughs> but it's earth nonetheless. And that's what I want to do. Like at that point when you're 13 and you're seeing all this crazy shit and it's blowing your mind, were you mm-hmm. into, like, were you listening to stuff along those lines before that? Or was that kind of your introduction to blues and rock and roll? Uh, no, we've been listening to that stuff all of our lives. Um, yeah. we had older, we had older cousins, but my brother okay. Phil and I had older cousins that were into, um, a variety of musics. Uh, my cousin JJ lived out on a ranch in the Northwest San Fernando Valley. He lived on, he grew up on a horse ranch 
And so he liked, you know, Buck Owens and George Jones, things like that. Did you guys respond to the country stuff as well? Like, were, at that point, were you into, like... Yeah, to an extent. With... Okay. I'm talking about when we were little kids. Right, um, okay. You know, little, little kids. Yeah, we didn't know names of music. Okay. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. We didn't know, well, that's Bakersfield sound there, you know. <laughs> um, so we, did, we just, like, you know, when you're a kid, you respond to the song. Right. Or the performance of the song. You don't respond to the genre, you know, like yeah. a lot of people say, well, I only like country music or I only like heavy metal or this that, and the other. When you're a kid, you don't know the difference. So anyway, so then we had the, we had our cousin Donna, who was a, uh, she would, she was a rock and roller R and B chick, as she would say. Mm-hmm. And, and she would give us, she, she had some great records. And then when she got tired of them or whatever, she'd give them to us. Nice. So through, through her, you know, and like we were getting Big Joe Turner records. Okay. So you'd heard him through that. And Ray Charles. Yeah. And Ray Charles records and doo uh-huh. records. And then uh, our cousin Mike was a folky and he played banjo and he played guitar and he loved, you know, everything from Ramblin' Jack Elliott and Dave Van Rock to Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee and things like that. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we'd been exposed to it. We, so by this time, yeah, we had a concept of what was blues or, yeah. you know, what various types of styles fell right. under the blues umbrella. And yeah, well, at the same time that we were sneaking into bars, following Big Joe Turnaround, you know, as little kids, you know, you could also occasionally sneak into a honky tonk. And there used to be a, you know, where we grew up, there was a, a, a lot of great honky tonks. There was the Tumbleweeds and Bell Gardens where my, you know, uh, Wynn Stewart used to play. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, my friend, my dear late friend, Chris Gaffney, remembers his old man taking him into the bar as a little kid, setting him on the bar, and then his old <laughs> man would go up and sing with Wynn Stewart's band. You know? wow. that's cool. And, um, yeah, and, but his old man would get up and sing My Funny Valentine. Right. <laughs> 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 little change of pace. Yeah, and then there was a, there was a whole strip of hockey talks out there. There was the Foothill, uh-huh. and Signal Hill, which was uh, the Grand Dame. There was the Nashville, uh, what was it called? Nashville West or Nashville Beach where Greg Lease used to play. The, okay. You know, the great steel player, Greg, used yeah. to, in his early days was in the, you know, would get gigs playing pedal steel at that place. There was the Blue the blue Bayou in, um, in Bellflower, California. There was the... These places are all live, live country music seven nights a week at that point? Yeah. So, you know, you could sneak in and see that. You know, so where we grew up, Downey, you know, is in the southeast um, part of L.A. County. And the thing that was great about that was we, that was where, you know, for lack of a better term, that's where the workers lived. You know, Uh it wasn't, it wasn't movie stars and swimming pools. It's where the people that came both from the the Dust Bowl diaspora from the 30s. Yeah. to the, um, you know, the um, uh, Midwest from the South. So you had all these, you know, plus, you know. Pretty working the, class. Uh, yeah, plus you had, you know, you could go see a great Nortenio band. You, right, you right. Know? Yeah. Um, so you had all these people that brought their musics with them. So at that point, were you playing guitar and stuff, or had you not, not really started yet? I, I hadn't started. My brother started, you know, I would beat on it. Uh-huh. I would beat on guitars, you know, uh, we had, a, <laughs> we had a couple laying around the house, but, um, you know, 
my cousin Mike was pretty good on the guitar and the banjo. My brother got pretty good right away. My brother has got the right kind of brain yep. uh, for finger picking. And my brother became a, a pretty good finger picker and sort of the blind boy fuller, blind Blake yeah, kind sure. of approach yeah. a little, you know, the little Gary Davis thrown in. Was he pretty interested in getting it like really accurate and correct? Or was it more of a feel thing for him? Uh, it depended. He, yeah. he still was also, he picked up harmonica real quick. And he, when he was like 14, he took lessons from Sonny Terry. Really? And yeah. So his harmonica playing was, was better than his guitar playing. Uh-huh. And he was one of those guys that was, you know, he had the uh, Fender Pro amp. He, you know, found yeah. a Fender Pro amp and an old, you know, microphone like little Walter would use. And, and so when he was a teenager, that was kind of his deal was, you know, was being, you know, little Walter, Sonny Boy Williamson. And, uh, and yeah, and he can still do it. He doesn't like to do it because there's so many harmonica players now. You know? right. Right. So he yeah. likes to, uh, he likes to keep his harmonica playing to a minimum where I, on the other hand, push him to play harmonica. Cause, Cause you know, he's a badass. He's a tasteful badass on harmonica. <laughs> and yeah. you know, what happened was when he died, um, three years ago, three and a half years ago. And, you know, we, he died over in Valencia, Spain, and we don't know how long he was dead. He was dead at least 10 minutes. What brought that on? Was it a, was it an aneurysm or something? So he'd gotten a, um, a staph infection called MRSA, which is deadly. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he wound up in the hospital in, in Downey. And then when they let him out of the hospital, they gave him these antibiotics. And I'm not kidding or exaggerating. They, they were cans because MRSA is so deadly and insidious. They, they were cans of antibiotics. Jeepers. As big as, you know, those Foster beer cans? Those Australian <laughs> yeah. beer. I'm not kidding. They <laughs> were that big. Knock back. And he, oh, brutal. Yeah, and he had to, he had to inject them uh, two times a day yeah. and keep, keep these cans of antibiotics in the refrigerator. So yeah, it kind of looked like... <laughs> <laughs> but what happened was... Uh, so then he had to do that for like two months after he got out of the hospital. And they killed all the MRSA, killed the staph infection. The the sad thing was it killed everything else. Uh-huh. You know, it killed uh, it killed the bad stuff and it killed the good stuff. Right, right. So what happened was he as um, he went on tour to Europe, he had um, an impacted tooth, and the the poison inside the impacted tooth then uh, spread through his his uh, his throat right. and. Long story short, it, it basically swelled up and made it impossible to breathe. And he was slowly on this tour having more and more trouble breathing. And then one night, yeah, he was literally on stage and he couldn't breathe. Holy shit. And so then they rushed him to a hospital and yeah, he died. And so to get him, to bring him back to life, you know, they, they had to do a tracheotomy to get air back into his, into his lungs yeah. and then... Yeah. Uh, and then the Spanish doctor named Dr. Mariela Anayas Cifuentes, this beautiful, beautiful woman, doctor, got on top of my brother and beat the living shit out of him until <laughs> 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 his heart started beating. That'll, and, that'll do and, it. Yeah, and I always wanted to do that. <laughs> Why couldn't I be the one to do that? Why did I have to be 8,000 miles away? I would have loved to beat the shit out of my brother. So how did you go from being like a fan and, and listening to old records and and seeing and following Big Joe Turner around and, and that whole scene, how did you get into playing and 
and you know like you and phil at some point must have gone hey we should start a band man like what was that process like uh well it was long he always had from the age of about 13 or so he started his first band the area we grew up in for whatever reason had a lot of great musicians and uh-huh. a lot of great guitar player like intimidatingly good and good good guitar players there was okay. a, there there was a guy named mike roach and uh, but then he took too much mescaline and wound up in an insane oh, asylum shit. but he was yeah friggin' brilliant, you know, and he had mm-hmm. a 56 gold top Les Paul, you know, he had, yeah, he was handsome and late girls <laughs> loved him. Then there was another guy that was uh, named Gary Massey who grew up in, uh, who grew up in Watson. Uh-huh. Gary, Gary could do T-Bone Walker, like almost okay. better than T-Bone Walker. <laughs> so there was all these great musicians. And so my brother always had a band and the musicians were always good. And then, uh, make a long story sort of short, um, this woman, uh, named Mary Franklin, who had been a blues singer back in the glory days of the Central Avenue in the 40s and 50s. She started managing my brother's band, and through that was how we met Lee Allen and, uh, okay. you know, and then Big Joe Turner and, and Timo Walker would be giving the band lessons. Well, that's you know? how people yeah. were back then with bands. Like, it was it was a real, yeah. like, gig, right? To, like, whip people into shape and not let people slack off and get them yeah, tight, and, right? You know, and she, she made the band do things like, you know, they had to have suits. They had right. to wear suits and look nice. And yeah. uh, they had to, uh, you know, there would be no, um, you know, in those days, if you were a, a white blues band, you know, that meant 20-minute songs, and there was none of that. Right, you know? right. And uh, the rule, I remember, I remember uh, Marcus schooling my brother and the guys, and the people can't dance for 20 minutes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, four minutes at the most you know right. what tunes were they playing were, were they doing like t-bone walker tunes and stuff like that or was it yeah everything everything from yeah. t-bone walker and big joe turner you know again some of the songs on these records are what they were doing you know feel right. so good the, okay yeah. the big bill song um uh just the dream you know yeah. they would be doing that that big bill song just the dream i had on my mind yeah I love that too. uh they'd be doing um Hide and Seek, which is mm-hmm. on the Lost Time album, and uh, We Baby Blues, which is on the yeah. Lost Time record. You know, so it was all that kind of stuff, plus Little Walter and Muddy Waters. And- what kind of stuff were you learning, or were they learning from the older guys that were around, like Lee Allen and, and these guys that were hanging out? Like, what kind of things were they teaching them? Basics, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah part of it was the, what I was just explaining, you know, was how to present yourself, this, that, and the other, and, uh, yeah. you know, and you know, old school stuff, some of which is valuable, some of which was not, you know, Lee Allen, when he was in the blasters, um, used to, you know, and I, in those days I wrote the set list for the band and, and I remember one time Lee gave me, now David, here's what you got to (laughs) do is, you know, whatever the single was, you know, we'll say, we'll say I'm shaking. We had a, we had some success doing this little Willie John song, I'm shaking and Lee would say, now that's your single. So, what you do is you come out and you open with that and you end with that. And oh, then when okay. you do the encore, you come out and play it again. Because <laughs> that's your single. You're trying to get people to leave. And, and you know, you, you think back to those days when he was touring with Bats Domino who, or whomever. That's how they yeah, do that's it. that's true. That was the rule. Yeah, you right, know what I mean? Right. You know, and I was trying to say, well, it's different now, Lee. And it's like, David, <laughs> don't tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> you know? So there was things that you, you know, and Lee, you know, I because there were so many guitar players in our neighborhood that were great, yeah. I decided um, I would 
do the opposite. You know, if you want to get invited to the jam sessions, you're not getting invited if you're a guitar player. I decided um, that I would play tenor sax and, and flute. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, and flute. so okay. then I even took, yeah, I even took lessons from Lee. And uh, okay. I'll, I'll never forget Lee Allen's, you know, there's a couple of good stories. You know, one was, uh, Shit, was you know, now David, which, and I'm like 15 yeah, at yeah. the time, and I'm honking away, trying to, <laughs> trying to, you know, trying to play like Lee as right. well as, you know, trying to figure out giant steps, you know, so right, right, yeah. I'm all screwed up in my head. <laughs> and remember Lee saying, well, David, what you do is you do about 10 minutes where you practice your scales, uh-huh. take a break, have a cigarette, read the newspaper, then go back, practice your scales for 10 minutes, take a break, smoke a cigarette, watch TV, then go back, you know, and I just love the 15 years old. Yeah. Okay. All right. Practice scales, smoke cigarette. You know? <laughs> You're a chain smoker at 15. Thanks to Lee. Allen. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, how far did you get on the sax before you graduated to guitar? I, I, I didn't suck entirely. I was better at flute. Flute I was pretty good at. Really? Um, yeah, one I was lighter. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, I, I, uh, I, I sucked acceptably at saxophone. But okay. Lee Allen at one point just said, you know, David, maybe saxophone is not your instrument. And that set me towards guitar. Okay. And um, so anyway, so there were all these great musicians, this and the other. Uh, but then everybody either started uh, winding up in jail or mm-hmm. or a couple of guys died. You know, the one guy I was talking about wound up in an insane asylum. Right. And so long story short, I was the last guy left. Okay. And my brother, my brother had had a, had a little blues R&B combo going with James Harmon. Oh, great. And, and James bought me my first electric guitar. He bought me a, a 63 Fender Mustang. Beautiful. That's a pawn shop in Santa Ana, California for like 70 bucks. And it had Schecter pickups in it. It was kind of hot rotted. Yeah. And it had a, it had a, a, a weird, one of those weird Fender. Somebody told me they used to call them Friday afternoon special necks. That wasn't quite a Mustang neck. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, there's some guy in the, in the, in the, you know, assembly line going, well, let's put this neck from that over here, you know. <laughs> it's Friday, man. And uh, so I was, yeah, I was the last guitar player left, and my brother and James had kind of come to a disagreement uh-huh. because James wanted to continue just doing, you know, pure kind of shuffle harmonica blues, and my brother right. was trying to do Jackie Wilson songs and things okay. like that, and, you know, and expand the definition of what blues was. The, that little combo broke up, but Phil and Bill Bapin, then started this started this band um mm-hmm. and like i said i was the only guitar player left so how long so, how long had you been playing for at that point like how not, not serious seriously i didn't start seriously playing guitar until about 10 years ago so um <laughs> so but meanwhile it seems like you'd sucked in all this stuff because like when i oh, hear yeah. you play you've got all that shit down like all the the blues vocabulary all that you know you're pulling from t-bone you're oh, yeah. from all that stuff so obviously yeah. like i don't know if you went through a period of like serious woodshedding or if it just kind of like came from just playing a lot of flipping gigs it was both yeah you know i would do the thing was i'd watch guitar players uh when i was a kid and then grab a guitar and try to duplicate it right. so, so that that meant anybody from yeah anybody from t-bone walker to 
you know, Delta slash Chicago guys like Johnny Shines, you know, we used to see, you know, it's a long story, but Johnny Shines was brilliant, brilliant singer and a brilliant guitar player. Yeah. We'd see him a bunch. He'd play the Ash Grove and we would, you know, sit front row. Right. And just stare at his, you know, I'd stare at his fingers and see what he was doing. And, and, you know, it, and then you race home and try to duplicate it. Right. I figured if everything went well, I could maybe get a job at the Fontana steel mill. Okay. You know, I'm sure, yeah. you know, my yeah. brother worked in the Fontana steel mill slag pit for a while when he was a teenager. Oh, that'll make you never want to work a job like that again. I bet. Yeah. That kind of wrapped up his, 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 his life in the steel mills kind of ended in the yeah. flag pit. And, but I thought, you know, yeah, if, if worse comes to worse, I can always get that, you know, but, yeah. you know, but of course, little did I know that all those jobs would be gone and the, and the right. factory torn down and this side and the other. But yeah, I never considered it a real thing, a reality, uh-huh. you know, to me, songwriters or guitar players. Yeah. I mean, if you're, you know, Bob Dylan wasn't from Hibbing, Minnesota, Bob Dylan was from Mars. And it took me a lot of, um, you know, a, study in a variety of areas, you know, both uh, literature and music and this and the other to realize, you know, everybody is from somewhere, you know, and I had yeah. some great poetry professors that um, where I learned you okay. could write, you could write about Taco Bells. Right. And right. it's okay. You know, you don't have to pretend to be Shelley or Byron. Right. And, um, or Allen Ginsberg, you know, you yep. can just write about the, the friggin' Taco Bell on the corner. <laughs> and, um, and that was a big step. And that's where in my brain, all of it started coming together. And I started thinking, well, maybe I can write songs that are kind of like the poetry I read, the small press, you know, kind of avant-garde, um, yet, um, you know, sort of, there were certain writers, poets that I loved, like Charles Bukowski and mm-hmm. uh, Gerald sure. Lachlan, Gerald Lachlan, and writers like that. That uh, I saw, I saw the blues in their writing. Yeah, and totally. I saw, okay, here's how I can interpret. He's, here's how I can put my my worlds together. Yeah, and yeah. Um, and so anyway, so my brother needed a guitar player. They're starting this band. He was stuck with me. We played a <laughs> wedding. We played this wedding, and it was magical. It, it was just like it clicked instantly, and part of uh-huh. it was my my brother's approach to guitar playing was again it was pre-war, yeah, um, pre-World War Two. You know, he was a you know rag rag blues kind of picker. Was he pretty much uninf- uninformed by contemporary stuff? Was it more like forties? No, he 30s, knew 40s? it. He knew okay. it, but his his approach to guitar playing was, you know, um, he didn't play BB King stuff. Right. He okay. didn't. He didn't play. You know, Magic Sam stuff. Okay. He had the records and everything. I mean, he could play it. He hand him a guitar and say, "Play it, BB King." Yeah, you could do it, but that's not where his leanings were. I gotcha. That complements those two styles, or, or yeah, or it does. Most sometimes it clashes, but in general, at this gig, it was just like, "Wow." Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I remember at the end of the gig, my whole body just kind of like going, "I want to do this forever." and i don't you know i was working as a fry cook Uh and uh and i just thought i don't want to do that i want to do this right and that's that's where the blasters were born at that gig where it's like you know um there was something you know years later after i left the band um 
Nobel laureate Bob Dylan and <laughs> we're having a conversation <laughs> and uh, both of us were feeling no pain. Uh-huh. And, uh, and so Bob Dylan says to me, so Dave, when are you and your brother getting back together? That was magic, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and I said, why don't you go be in a band with your brother, Bob? <laughs> and, he said, and he says, my brother's a genius. If he had a band, he wouldn't have me in it. <laughs> and, uh, but there was, you know, there was a magic about the two Alvin brothers playing together. At what point did you pick up that role of being like the primary songwriter in the bunch? Well, I had studied poetry mm-hmm. in, in my checkered college career. And I had, I had some great, great teachers that made us write, you know, you could write all the free verse you wanted, but when you were, what they would do every week was, okay, I want a sonnet. I want two sonnets. And I had to learn, I had no idea what iambic pentameter was. I had no idea what, what syllable count was. I had no idea what a sonnet was. So I had to learn. And so by, by these teachers forcing us to write in, in poetic forms, it suddenly clicked in my brain. Oh, a, a blues is mm-hmm. just a sonnet. It's just a form. Right. You know, it's not a guitar solo. It's not a harmonic solo. The blues are a poetic form. Yeah. And once you learn that, these poetic forms, whether it's sonnet or haikus or alexandrines or the blues, you can yeah, then communicate in that line. In that well, language, you, yeah. can, you can mess. Yeah. You can mess them up. Right. You know, so instead of a 12 bar blues, you can write a 16 bar blues, you know what I right. mean? Yeah, yeah. But you have to kind of have an idea. So I had, I had studied that stuff. And so we made a demo tape that was mainly us doing like little junior Parker songs or Helen Wolf songs and Carl yeah. Perkins songs and uh Magic Sam song, you know, things like that. And we were we we were trying to take it around to clubs and record labels, you know, little independent labels and trying to get a deal to at least make one forty five or something, you know, yeah. Capture yeah. this. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And uh, we wound up at the home of this guy named Ronnie Weiser, um, rockin' Ronnie Weiser, who had a little independent rockabilly label called Rollin' Rock. Mm-hmm. And he listened to this to the set, and and he said, you know, I'd love to do a record with you guys, but you need original material. And mm-hmm. um, so we had a band meeting after that, and we <laughs> said, okay, next week everybody bring in one or two songs. Really? You know, yeah. And uh, so, so then it was an, said, it okay, was an internal challenge. Yeah, and like I said, I I had I had been writing songs in my head since childhood. 
you know, driving my mother insane as she drove the car. I would just sit in the car and make up songs as we drove along. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, so we met a week later, and I brought in two songs that nobody else did. <laughs> so, so, Dean, you're the songwriter. Do you remember what the songs were? Yeah, it was a song called American Music and a song called I Don't Want To. One of them's good. <laughs> <laughs> were they the first two songs you ever wrote? No, but they're the first two. I'd written, like I said, I'd been singing songs in the car Yeah. from four years old on. But and, like fully uh, formed though, like were they, were they the first yeah, ones no, that these were the first. I, I had sat down, I'd had a shitty band before I got played with my brother with some friends and we called ourselves the murderers. <laughs> and which is what which is what we did to music <laughs> and uh, and yeah I'd written a couple of things for them and yeah. so I kind of you know one one song in particular was kind of uh, was the first time I I you know was like you know I I figured out theme verse bridge yeah. chorus theme yeah. you know that kind of thing and um, and so yeah so they they were they weren't the first songs I wrote but. Uh, they were the first I wrote for the Blasters, and they were the, you know, like I said, one of them was good, one of them, the other one yeah. was, you know, workable. At that point, did you start churning them out, like, on a pretty regular basis? You realized there was an outlet, and... Yeah, slowly, you know, I'm a slow writer. Okay. And, but, yeah, about, about a week and a half later, I came in with Marie Marie and, and wow. uh, a song called Flat Top Joint. Holy shit. How, how old were you at this point? Well, like 22. At that point, like, I'm sure it's evolved for you, but like, what what was your writing process in those early days where you're probably struggling a bit with just like musically putting things together? Like, were you, uh, were you um, uh, an all at once kind of guy or were you chipping away at things and were you writing it lyrics depends. first? You know, yeah? it depends. To this day, it's the same thing. It just depends. Uh-huh. I've had them, I've had them come fully formed and I've had, I've had to pull them out of the mouth of, you know, right, I had right. to pull the, the, the song tooth, you know, out of the mouth with pliers, you know, (laughs) so it just, it just, it, you know, for me, it's just whatever with, um, with the blaster stuff, the challenge was, you know, we were basically when all said, when all is said and done, blasters were basically just sort of a, uh, a blues R and B band. Some of the guys would be happy just playing blues and R and B to this day. Yeah. On the other hand, yeah, we, we kind of realized, yeah, we need to have original songs, but I knew what these guys would play and what they wouldn't play. Yeah. For example, I didn't, I didn't come in with a polka. Right. Yeah, no, this would be cool, you know? <laughs> um, and, um, yeah, so, so you're writing, you're writing stuff kind of geared towards the ensemble, which is super cool. Yeah. And it was, it was also, um, we were also into so much blues slash roots music at that point yeah that a song like marie marie you know i kind of you know that one came the melody and everything came i was taking a nap really and i woke up from the nap and i had this song go through my head and i grabbed the guitar and i started you know figuring out okay this goes here you know yeah but i had no idea what what the song was about i had no lyrics i just had this thing in my in my skull Uh uh-huh and the melody, you know, was kind of a Cajun melody, but I was kind of thinking also of a guy like a Louisiana blues guy, like Lazy Luster, you know, right. so somewhere yeah. between, somewhere between like the Balfa brothers, you know, uh-huh. uh, the great Cajun acoustic family group or a Louisiana Accelo record, you know, mm-hmm. like by Lazy Luster. And then a couple of days later, 
we had a rehearsal. And so about an hour before the rehearsal, I was like, God, I really want to play this thing with those guys. I need some lyrics. <laughs> and yeah, I wrote the, and I, I remembered this. Um, I remember a couple of things kind of, uh, as a kid, I remember, you know, where we grew up, there was still rural yeah, pocket, yeah. you know? And I remember driving, being in my parents' car, driving to some friend of theirs. And we went through this, um, patch of rural California. And there was a girl sitting on the porch of a old beat up Victorian in the sun, in the sunset playing guitar. And that image just stuck with me from childhood. Uh-huh. And for some reason, while I was, I was kind of trying to go up with lyrics. I just thought of this girl playing the guitar on the porch. And I was like, okay, what's this about? You know, what, what yeah. happened there? And so I wrote that. That's, that's kind of, you know, I just wrote it down in like an hour. What about a tune like Dark Night, which I've always loved, and it's such like a, it's kind of like an evocative, but still like rock and roll tune at, at, at heart. And it's kind of like, it kind of pulls from Chuck Berry in that way, I think, where where there's a real, you know, story and, and mood that gets um, evolved out of kind of a basic form, but like you're kind of stretching it out and doing all this cool stuff that's not it's like deceptively simple how like with a song like that did you have to struggle with it at all or was it a little bit one? just because yeah. um by that point i you know by the time i wrote dark night you know um uh you know i'd already written some songs that quote you know quotation marks had social consciousness to them you know uh-huh. yeah and um you know, I would I wouldn't come right out and say things. I didn't write songs like you know, go to hell, corporations. You know, I didn't write anything <laughs> like that. But I would inside all my songs to this day. They're you know, I'm telling stories for a reason. And so, you know, as far as story songs go, you know, to me the ultimate are the the two ultimate are El Paso by Marty Robbins, yeah, and uh, and Memphis by Chuck Berry. Totally, the two ultimate story songs. You know. And so I always kind of worked with them, you know, I always liked that. Yeah. And so with Dark Knight, I was, there had been some shootings, interracial shootings going on. And so that's why I wrote that song, you know, okay. and it's, it's basically was, you know, let's write a blues song about this, but you know, how do we do it? You know, part of the trick when you're a story song songwriter is, you know, what to leave in and what to leave out. Maybe uh-huh. there's one or two of my songs where I left too much in and maybe there's one or two where you should have <laughs> more. Who knows? But, you know, certain songs, you know, like Marie Marie or something like that, you know, it, it tells you everything and it tells you nothing. Yeah. And yeah. so if you can balance Which is that, part you know, of the great, that's part of the great mystery about a song like that, I think. Yeah. You know, um, the song of mine, 4th of July, it's pretty popular down here. I don't, I don't know how popular it is in Canada or England or anything, but it's pretty popular here. But yeah, that's, that was a song that, uh, when I wrote it, I just thought no one else on earth will understand this song, uh-huh. but you it know, connect. to me, it, to me, it says everything, but it's so vague in some ways. Mm-hmm. And no, that's one of the ones people have latched onto over the years, you know, it's like, so you never know. What about a song like King of California? Like who, who's influencing that side of your songwriting? Would you say? Oh, well that goes, you know, that, that goes back to, uh, you know, folk music and all that, you know, right. Old, old, um, you know, I, I like, you know, one of the charms of, or enticements of old folk music, you know, the real stuff is the editing process that happens, you know? And, um, 
you know, where a song like Black Jack David or Black Jack Davy, you know, I recorded that. And, um, you know, that when it was, when it first started being composed by some guy in uh, England or, or Scotland, you know, in the Highlands or wherever, in the Borderlands, wherever it was first composed, by the time it reached, let's say, by the time it went from uh, Leeds or Durham in the north down to, uh, I don't know, by the time it hit London, it had already morphed in a million ways, you right, know, and right. verses had been left out. And, you know, and by the time it, you know, first got recorded in the 1920s, say 100 years after it was written, it had already taken on this whole other life. Yeah. And I always liked that about folk songs. Right. Um, you know, people edited out verses, they edited out things that weren't, you know, appropriate sure. for them. Yeah, yeah. And then it, then you get this you get the great ambiguity of the of folk music. With King California, yeah, I, I was trying to capture that, you know, mm-hmm. a little bit, but also it's a little more straightforward of a story. Yeah. But um but there is that moment, you know, the to me the moment that I'm going to sound egotistical here, but the the moment that gives me chills every time I sing it is the last verse where, okay, uh-huh. I'm dying, but I'm coming back to you somehow, you know, and yeah, I, it's heavy, I like man. that. So you're armed with a, a batch of, of tunes. Can you just tell me a bit about your, your early experiences in the studio? Like, um, was American music, was that the first time you'd really done a record? The, the album American music on Rolling Rock. Yeah. We, none of us had ever really made a record before. So what was that whole, what was that whole session like and was it like intimidating and weird or anything? It was 2 days in a garage. Rock and Ronnie had a had a home studio in his garage. Okay. And we spent we spent 2 days in there with uh several cases of beer. Yeah. And uh, you know, and he it was great. We cut I guess 22 24 songs. Yeah, man. In that period, you know, and you know, it was everything from original songs of mine to, uh, yeah, Magic Sam covers and uh-huh. Hank, you know, uh, Howlin' Wolf cover and, you know, Sonny Burgess, a lot of stuff, you know, right. that, didn't, yeah. that didn't make the final record. So, yeah, it was that was a thrill. That was like, you know, that was like injecting methamphetamine directly into your veins. You know, it was <laughs> like, we're making a record! You know, because it, especially because you think you're never making another one. Right, <laughs> you know yeah. I mean? Better enjoy it, and, man. Uh, yeah, exactly. And, you know, and I still have that, that, um, feeling to this day of, you do, well, right? this might be, this might be it, you know, this might be the last <laughs> record, you know? So we were pretty, we were pretty high, you know, uh-huh. um, both on the beer, but also the rush of, uh, the sure. rush of recording and hearing yourself back. And, you know, Ronnie kind of dropped the ball as far as sonically for us. You, know, you think? He didn't have, oh, hell yes. Yeah. He, he screwed up. He didn't get the bass right. You know, some of the Rolling Rock records sound great. Ray Campy's uh-huh. records that Ray Campy did on the label and yeah, Matt yeah. Curtis and some of the other old-time rockabilly guys that recorded for Ronnie. Their records sound great. And ours sounds kind of, like I said, he didn't get the bass right. Yeah, that's important. That's really important. Yeah, it's kind of part of the band. Was Ronnie engineering that record? Yeah. Or was there, okay. And you were tracking it pretty live, obviously, right? Oh, totally live. Totally four live. guys in a four guys in a garage, one, two, three, go, you know. Yeah, yeah. And um yeah, no, it was great. Were you guys getting hung up at all about tones and things like that, or was it just like set up and get your sound as you normally do and go? Uh we we should have been more concerned about tones. <laughs> <laughs> I think we were more concerned about is is there still beer? 
Maybe we should go get more beer. <laughs> yeah, that's a big priority. Kind of more we were concerned about. Uh, yeah. yeah, we, 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 you know, Ronnie dropped the ball sonically. We dropped the ball sonically. And it took us, you know, recording Roots music is a really treacherous thing. Yeah. Uh, because it's just hard. You know, Roots music of any type is meant to be played to an audience. Right. You know? Yeah, uh, totally. I mean, there are exceptions to that, but in general, you're playing to get people to dance or people to cry or whatever, and you, you kind of need that feedback from the audience to make to make it magic. Um, mm-hmm. But on the other hand, yeah, it took me years and years to learn how to record, you right. know, because you, you walk into the studio, and the studio, you know, especially later on with the blasters, you know, we started working in state of the art studios. Yeah. And, um, and that's intimidating, you know? Yeah, it is. And then there's that whole thing, you know, of guys, again, we were ignorant of certain things and, you know, the drummer, Bill Bateman, great drummer, but mm-hmm. you know, we would be in a studio and they'd set up the mics and he'd play to get a drum sound. And then he'd come in and listen and go, that's not what my drums sound like. Mm-hmm. And then you realize he's hearing it from where he's sitting, right? Yeah. And, you know, he doesn't understand this. And we would go through hours and hours and hours of wasting studio time to try to get the drums to sound like what it sounded like from where he sat. You know, down right. to we would put a mic above his head. Sure, <laughs> you know? yeah. Yeah, and, a lot of people uh, do that, yeah. Yeah, you know, and, and um, you know, and then we do things like we would bring in, you know, we had, uh, you know, you work with a lot of modern engineers, and sometimes the vocabulary, both um, both the verbal vocabulary and the musical vocabulary are different. Uh-huh. So you got a guy that that you know grew up listening to Dark Side of the Moon, and then you know we're coming in and trying to play him Atlantic Records by Big Joe Turner, saying, "Can you make us sound like this?" You know? yeah, yeah. And most guys can't. You know, right. it's just it, that's a lost art. It's like one mic, one mic in a room. A lot of those records, and 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 the mix is done by how far from the mic you are, right? Yeah, you know, I mean, years later, a few years later, we were touring, opening for Eric Clapton, and and at one of the gigs, there was a party afterwards, and Tom Dowd was there, who was the oh, yeah. engineer on a lot of that Atlantic yeah. stuff. Yeah, man. And and my brother got into this, I wouldn't say argument, but a heated discussion with Tom Dowd, <laughs> because Tom Dowd had you know moved so far away from that that he was trying to explain to my brother that, you know, it can't be done. You can't make a record that sounds like that anymore. My brother says, yes, you can. You did it. You can do it again. And he was like <laughs> saying, well, man, I'm, I'm into, uh, I'm only into doing, I don't know who he said, Depeche Mode or somebody yeah, like the Thompson he got right Twins. into the, yeah. And he, and he was saying, that's what I'm into now. And my brother was like, you're out of your fucking mind. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you recorded Big Joe Turner and Charlie Mingus. You should do, you know, I don't know. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, we were, it was a learning thing that took me years and it took working with, um, guys like Greg Lease, you know, and, uh-huh. um, and then finding, I was fortunate enough to find, uh, you know, some engineers through the years that did have a similar vocabulary where I could say, I knew what you wanted. Yeah. 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 I could say, you know, let's make this sound more like a, you know, let's make it more of a King record as opposed to a chess record, you know, right. and they would go, Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, or, yeah. you know, that takes to, some deep understanding. Yeah. You know, Mark Lynette, I worked with for a long uh-huh. time and, yeah, and Mark great, was eh? real good. Mark yeah. was real good at, I would say, 
or he would say, here, use this microphone. This is a 60s, you can get the 60s Howlin' Wolf, early 60s Howlin' Wolf sound yeah. out of this microphone. And I'd be like, okay, you're know, <laughs> speaking my language. And uh, so, yeah, it, 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 take, it took me a while to learn, you know, and yeah. to, you know, and over the years, you know, I would soak up sort of similar to whatever guitar players I saw growing up. I would watch engineers, you know, and, I, and I'm not an engineer and, and anything, but I, I learned tricks, you know, like we worked mm-hmm. with them um, on the last Blasters album that I did, the thing called Hardline. Yep. We worked, uh, we had a great engineer whose name just walked right out of my skull, but the producer <laughs> was a guy named Jeff Eirich and uh, Jeff Edel. Uh-huh, and okay. uh, he engineered and he was great. And we were in, he could make us sound you know, so you're talking about the song Dark Knight. That was all the songs on the record. And he finally kind of made us sound like how we sounded. Okay. You yeah. know, and, that's a real challenge but, with a band like that. Yeah. But then we also, we worked on a couple of tracks where, where Don Gaiman and John Mellencamp produced. And oh, yeah. I learned a lot just from watching those two guys, uh-huh. you know, because. What kind of things? Uh, yeah. Well, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't particularly a fan of Mellencamp's work. Uh-huh. But I was a fan of his of his records, okay. Because he knew, you know, he knew how to make rock and roll and rhythm and blues kind of combine. He understood dynamics, yeah. The, the sort of dynamics, you know, that say the Motown house band would have, or a, mm-hmm. something like that. And you know, everything from how to do a drum loop, you know, without without the drums, you know, they would they would create. You know, instead of using a click track to keep us in time, they would create a, a percussion loop. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then it was real easy for us to play in time because we're playing along with this thing that's not going tick, 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 tick. <laughs> totally. You know? Yeah. What did Mellencamp produce for you? He produced a song called uh, Colored Lights. He wrote and produced. He was trying to get oh, us a hit okay. record. Oh, okay. And, um, you know, and it could have been a hit, you know, I guess. Yeah. Uh, maybe yeah. if, if we were better looking. <laughs> you mentioned Greg Lee as being somebody that yeah. um, was was big for you. What, what did you learn from him? He taught me pedal steel, but um, I so I I know his his vibe is very relaxed and calm, but he's like a maestro of awesome guitar tones. And uh, but I've never really seen him in action as a producer. What was that like for you? And I know you used him a number of times. Yeah, well, Greg had been in my first solo band when I quit when I quit the Blasters and I joined a band called X. At the, around the same time, I just started a band on the side because uh, I missed playing blues and R&B and, and, and some country stuff. When, when In X, even though those elements were in the music, the music was sort of based around eight notes. Da, 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 you know? Right, yeah, yeah. And so I started a band, just a jam band kind of uh-huh. thing, and we would, we would play in this bar from like two, or two in the afternoon until like six in the evening seven in the evening we'd drink beer and whatever and so in that band was greg lease uh tony gilkison the great guitarist was the other yeah. guitar players me and tony and then tony said i know this great pedal steel player let's get him in and so there was greg and then greg and i bonded instantly yeah because he was he had lived when he was a kid lived in santa fe springs california which is on the other side of the san gabriel river from downey Okay. So I, I had written a song that we were jamming on that was all about a kid riding his bike through the river, the San Gabriel Riverbed. 
And Greg said, oh, yeah, I used to do that, and blah, blah, blah. And then we <laughs> bonded instantly. Oh, cool. And so then, but as Greg, you know, in those days, Greg was doing, you know, country bar gigs. Yep. Um, yep. You know, four sets a night, six nights a week, you know, to pay right. the rent. And then, um, yeah, then uh, when we were we were out, we did a show in New York City with Katie Lang and, and um, yeah, who's the guitar player in her, in her band? Was it Steve Nicleva? No, it was the guy that produced some of the records. Ben Mink? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we played this gig, and Ben Mink just, like, zeroed in on Greg. Uh, can you come and do some sessions? Can you do this? Can you do that? You know? <laughs> and so, you know, like a year later, Greg's in Katie Lang's band, you yeah. know, and and um, and that kind of opened his way to fame and fortune, you know. Right, um, yeah. But as, but as Greg got more famous as a sideman and all that, we did some more records together, but then I finally I had a terrible experience recording an album of mine called Museum of Heart. Uh-huh. Greg, I just said, you know, next record I do, you're producing. Greg always had the good ideas. Right, right. And so one of the things Greg did for me was um, every, it was all sorts of little things from finding out that maybe, you know, as, a, as guitar players, we always want to be an E. You know, or we want to be an A, you know, because yeah, it's just yeah. easier to play. And, you know, and those are not necessarily my vocal keys. Okay. And Greg was the one that kind of said, you know, you might want to do that in B flat. Uh-huh. And that was eye opening. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, you know. Even um, even having played with horn players, that never came up that much where you were flipping as into... a, no, I'm talk, But I'm talking as a vocalist. And the other thing that kind of happened was I had done some shows acoustic with Richard Thompson. Uh-huh. And I, and I studied how he dealt with his voice Yeah, and he's got a, he's got a larger range than I do, but his, his basic range is mine, right. you know, meaning he's a baritone uh-huh. and I watched, you know, my experience with vocalists had always been with my brother was, my brother is a, um, is a holdover from the blues and R and B days of singing over the band. Right. You know, so the band's playing, but the singer's above them. Yeah, Same yeah. with uh, when I was an ex, John Doe, such a, you know, is a great singer who can sing over the band. Yeah. And so yeah. in my first solo records, I was trying to do the same thing. Okay. And that's, that's not my deal. You know, and I was watching Richard Thompson and I saw how he set his voice inside his guitar. Ah, Meaning it wasn't, it wasn't above, it wasn't, it was just, it was comfortably relaxed. Yeah. In the blasters, we were, we were, you know, we were violently opposed to things like capos because okay. we considered it, you know, unmanly. Unrock and roll. Yeah, unrock and roll. Even though I'd seen Johnny Guitar Watson live playing with a goddamn capo, you yeah, know, man. Albert Collins. Yeah, you know, and uh, so then finally I put a capo on my goddamn guitar and I could sing in <laughs> B flat, you know, <laughs> and um, and that was eye opening and great kind of, you know, he walked me through singing. Oh, into cool. discovering my own voice, which is, uh, you know, which I'm forever in his debt. I'm a barroom guitar player uh-huh. most of the time. I can get pretty sometimes, but in general, I'm a barroom guitar player. So I am interested in, is my finger on the fret that I make that note? Shit, fuck, <laughs> I didn't make that note. I'll just turn up louder, you know. And where Greg, Greg Lees is, is orchestral. Yeah, he's a finesse man. Through and through. Yeah. So when you're recording with Greg, when Greg's producing, um, Greg's 
you know, you're, you're just, or I'm just trying to get through the song and not fuck it up, you know? <laughs> and Greg is thinking two or three overdubs down the line. He's thinking that as he's playing with you, as you're tracking live. Sure. Greg's yeah. already thinking, you know, when we get to that bridge, I think I can put a 12 string on there. You know, he's, that's yeah. what he's thinking. And he's thinking what notes would go against this 12 string, you know, the 12 yeah. string could play you know, the, the B sharp and the, the blah, 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 you know, whatever. Yeah. And I've watched him do it. You know, you get a track that you like, and I'm just like happy that I played all five chords. I played all five. <laughs> I didn't fuck it up. And Greg's already, and Greg's already going, okay, we're going to add, you know, a harmonium here. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And the harmonium's going to be playing roughly these notes. And then I will play this little guitar figure against these, but you know, yeah, that was eye opening. You know? Right. Yeah. Again, in the, in the blasters, and in, even in my first solo band and stuff, it was you know one, two, three, four. Everybody jump into the free Go. for all, you yeah. know. And yeah. Then, yeah, and that's a that's valid, you know. That's, uh-huh. that's uh-huh. completely valid. But Greg's approach is completely valid too. What about working with people that came through the blasters, like Gene Taylor and Steve Berlin? Did you learn a lot of things musically from the from? being with those guys or were they? Well, just... Gene, I grew up with, you know, so right, Gene right. was always, we had a, for a little while we had for like six months, we had a beat up, you know, stand up piano in our, in our back room in our house. And Gene would, when he went, it's a long story, but he would come over and, and play for like three, four hours. So yeah, you, yeah. you just listen to Gene, you know, you learn a lot. Steve produced my first solo record and, um, you know, Steve, Steve knows his shit. You know, yeah. But um, Steve and I kind of know the same stuff. If that makes right. any sense. Yeah, yeah. I you know? So someone like Greg, where Steve, I value as a as a as you know, I can go to Steve Berlin to this day and say, Hey, what do you think of this? You think that yeah. sucks? And Steve <laughs> will say, Yeah, it sucks or it doesn't suck. And I trust him one hundred percent. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, with well with Greg, Greg's. Like I said, his brain works differently than mine musically. Mm-hmm. Just jumping back to the blasters for a sec, um, what yeah. what led what led you to eventually want to leave that whole scene? I mean, I don't know if if you left or if there was like a big dust up or or what actually happened, but like you know, you guys seem to be you know you put out a string of great records. You were certainly opening for a lot of huge like you were playing stadium shows, obviously, and getting well known. What was the what was your thought process in getting out of that band? Uh, the there was a lot. Part of it was my brother would have been happier, I think, being in a room full of blues. Mm-hmm. Like something really traditional? Yeah, I mean, that's really kind of where he's at, you know. Yeah. But on the other hand, you know, as much as I loved Room Full of Blues, I, I wasn't Duke Robillard, you know? Right. <laughs> I wasn't, uh, who's the other guy, the other great guitar player out of that band? Is it Ronnie Earl? Yeah, and I'm not Ronnie Earl or Duke Robillard. And right. so I realized early on that I was a songwriter. Uh-huh. That's where my strength lay. And I'd gotten to a point with the Blasters where if you, you know, if you, if you jump around on the, three studio albums that we did, you know, you'll see a progression where I wanted to use, start using all the, you know, uh, here's a, here's a hoary analogy metaphor. <laughs> I wanted to use all the colors on the palette. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to have to limit yeah, myself to, to, to certain things. Yeah. As a songwriter, that's important. This is a songwriter. Exactly. You know, if you wake up in the morning and you have a polka going through your head, you want to write the polka. You want to rock that polka. Yeah. 
Yeah, and you can't take it to the you can't take certain things to the blasters. When I quit the band, you know, my brother and I were fighting a lot, um, mm-hmm. kind of over the direction of the band, and right. I kind of wanted to take it even more into, you know, just other realms. Yeah, and yep. and my brother uh, and some of the guys maybe did and didn't, depending on what day of the week it was, you know. Uh-huh. And it just got frustrating. And yeah. then to turn around and say, oh, I've had enough of this. You know, it was really hard. But I knew as a songwriter that I couldn't write. I'd gotten to a point where I couldn't write songs for my brother anymore. I okay. just, I'd kind of reached that point. Yeah. yeah, well, what are you writing for your brother or for Barbra Streisand? You've got to find the thing that, that the singer can relate to. Was it a decision that kind of blindsided them? Or were they kind of expecting you to to leave the band at that point well we were we were we were always fighting you know that was just our (laughs) thing and so in a fight would usually you know end with one guy or the other saying i'm quit this fucking band you know (laughs) and um but yeah they were kind of we had a we had a really bad show in montreal oh that'll do it man it was terrible and um just as a band you mean or or bad circumstances no, the circumstances were great. It was some theater, uh-huh. theater, and um, the fabulous Thunderbirds were opening, and okay. we had opened we had opened for them like five years before when we were just a baby band, and they yeah. were they were just doing um, Slim Harpo and Lazy Luster covers, you know, right. and and we kind of aced them. Mm-hmm. We were all because we were all over the map. We were, yeah, we could yeah. do a little Slim Harpo, but we'll do a little little Walter, and we'll do some little Willie John, and we'll do this, yeah. and we'll do that. You know, yeah. and hey, we've got this song called Marie Marie, and everybody loves it. And you know, yeah. <laughs> and so we kind of aced them at the gigs, right. you know, where, where we opened for them. So now it's five years later, and they had they had gone through a profound. This they hadn't released the Tough Enough record, okay. but they were they were about to, uh-huh. and they had kind of morphed from being the fabulous Thunderbirds of, of the early days into being a quasi soul band, you yeah. know, with, with great musicians, you know, Jimmy was at his, you know, kind of peak and somewhere starting to peak. And, uh, you know, Kim Wilson was, you know, a pretty good front man, you know? So they go out and, and they just kill it. You know, they just, they're knocking out a ballpark, you know, mm-hmm. and the people in the theater are going nuts, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, cause you know, it's not, it, it, this was they weren't playing lazy and laid back they were they were doing a show they were giving her yeah yeah because they're doing sam and dave you know they're doing right. uh wrap it up i'll take it like so this for the record is released and they're doing tough enough which was a you know pretty good little pop blues song and killer uh, yeah they had that and so nailed. they're they're killing it and we go up there and you know it just went to hell man you know because uh-huh. some nights you have a bad gig this was a really yep. bad gig and and yep. i had this i had this french canadian girlfriend at the time and, oh yeah and she was there and i'm dying because we're fucking up in front of this beautiful woman and, and <laughs> it got you know it was the very first song some you know something happened in the first song where my brother didn't like what the drummer bill bateman was playing and he started changing the lyrics to marie marie oh my god to being because it's very first song, and, and he's singing about the drummer can't play drums, the drummer can't keep uh, time. And I'm getting pissed off as a songwriter, like, don't you be chaining yeah. a goddamn player. So I'm yelling at him. The drummer, <laughs> Bill's, you know, he's got his, his little stick bag on his on his floor, Tom, and he's just pulling sticks out of it, chucking them <laughs> while he's playing at my brother's head. 
and uh, Gene Taylor started, you know, Gene's getting pissed off, so he just, he, he put his hands together, you know, and just, and so he's, and he held his, his arms straight out ahead of him with his hands together, just started pounding that way on the piano oh in the song. God. Oh my and, God. Yeah, and, it, and it went downhill from there. Uh, <laughs> it was like we had shit. never played a gig before. Yeah. And so, yeah, Gene walked off the stage finally and he really? walked direct. Yeah. And he walked directly. Well, it was the end of the gig. Okay. At the end of the gig, this is, and this is true. Gene walked, he didn't even go to our dressing room. He walked directly from the stage and onto the fabulous Thunderbirds bus. And that was it. Gene was <laughs> really? in the Thunderbirds. Now. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and then I, when we get backstage, I said, this is ridiculous. This is not fun. This is not why we started the band. I'm quitting and I'm quitting for real. And, yeah. um, I, I grabbed my French Canadian girlfriend and we left. Yeah. And then the next morning I had to fly to New York to do a gig with the knitters with uh, John and Xine from X, this little side yeah. project we had. Uh-huh. And they had fired Billy Zoom, their, their, their guitar player like a day before. And I, I didn't know. And I show up for the sound check the next, the next day afternoon. And they, John and Nixie walk up there and say, yeah, you want to join X? I said, yeah, <laughs> I just quit the blasters. Fine. Great. You know, Holy shit. so it was like that. So that was that, that was the, that was the last gig was in Montreal. Yeah, I did. I did some, you know, I did contractually obligated gigs, uh-huh. you know, for about another, I don't know, two months, three months yeah. where I was doing both bands. I was touring with X and also going to do blaster gigs. So Ooh, that would have been tough, eh? It was heavy woodshedding. I had to learn like 32 X songs in a week. Right. <laughs> you know, but, right. but fortunately, I'd seen them so many times without a vague idea kind of what to do. <laughs> this whole LAA scene in the mid-80s, I guess. Early 80s. Or, you know, with X and Los Lobos came out of there, and you guys, of course, um, Beat Farmers and Country Dick and all, all that. Um, and you've had just such a big part of it. But I was just wondering if you could tell me a bit about the scene and how much you were playing back then and, and what, you know, some of your favorite nights would have been with with some of those people in those bands the main thing was that everybody kind of helped each other Mm -hmm. and um you know there was a magazine called slash a punk rock magazine and then they decided to start a label and their first band was a band darby crash uh had called the germs and the germs album sold unbelievably well (laughs) and like shockingly well Right, and so then suddenly Slash was a was a friggin' record label, you know, like the Germs yeah. had sold a hundred thousand copies, you know. Holy shit! And um, and Darby was, you know, uh, suddenly a punk rock star, you know. And yeah. so then um, Slash asked the Germs, um, "Who should we sign?" And they said, "Oh, you got to do X." And so mm-hmm. then they signed X, and X, the first album sold, you know, unbelievably well, you know, close to a hundred. Was that the one that Ray Manzarek did? Yeah, Ray did. Ray did like four albums with him. Right, but that was the first one. Okay, and so then Slash said to X, "Who should we sign next?" And X said, "The Blasters. You got to okay. sign the Blasters." Yeah, and so then they signed us eventually, and then uh, same thing. They asked us, "Who should we sign?" <laughs> and uh, we said, "Well, there's this band from East LA called Los Lobos that opens up <laughs> shows for us. You should sign them. They're great." You know, like I said, everybody. Um, you know, kind of looked out for each other. Yeah. And, uh, you know, some of the gigs, you know, particularly in the, in the like 1980, 
or so could get pretty violent and weird. You know, there's a lot of, uh, like the audience, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. You know, because it was all quotation marks, punk rock, you know? So right. the scene itself was intense and, and thrilling because mm-hmm. it, it was a real music scene. You know, you read about, yeah. you know, Kansas city in the thirties or, you know, Chicago in the fifties or whatever, New Orleans in the teens or twenties. And this was a real music scene. There was a lot of great, a lot of great musicians and songwriters, all, you know, everybody from Peter Case and his Plimsolls to Stan Ridgway and Wall of Voodoo to X to, you know, the Go-Go's, um, you know, to the Blasters, you know, and then, and then there was like the, the second generation of bands that would be like, you know, Lobos, Los Lobos yeah. and Green on Red, you know, that came after the, the first wave, but mm-hmm. everybody kind of helped each other. And, uh, you know, the Blasters, you know, like I said, X helped us. So then we turned around and helped Lobos. We even, you know, a few years later helped Dwight Yoakam. We took him out on tour and he got a record deal with Warner's, you know, because the Warner's people saw him open it up at one of our shows. And So was it, was a guy like Dwight Yoakam kind of even in a fringe way welcomed into that essentially punk rock scene of, of the LA? No, not really. Not okay. really. I mean, he, like, he was his audience crossing over. There were people, you know, there were people in the punk scene didn't like the blasters, you know? So it's, right. you know, okay, it wasn't yeah. like a, if you liked black flag, if you're yeah. really into black flag, you didn't like Dwight Yoakam. You know? right. I mean, let's be serious. Yeah. But, but there was enough of an overlap where say a band like the blasters, we could play, gigs with black flag because we played almost as fast as they did. Yeah. You had the same energy, like it's different yeah. music, but it's the same. Yeah. And so there, there would be guys up there, you know, in their audience and their audience screaming rockabilly sucks, but then there'd be other guys <laughs> flying through the air and, and joy, you know? Right. So it was just random, but no, Dwight was never really accepted by the, okay, you know, by the punk rock scene. But, you know, by this time, by the time Dwight came around, the, the, the battle lines had been already drawn or the cultural battle lines meeting, you know, with the arrival of the hardcore element. Yeah. Say in the late seventies, there, there wasn't that thing that what there was, was, um, kind of a, whatever you want to do, you know, it was, it was more like we're all oddballs and we don't fit in no matter mm-hmm. what kind of music you play. Cause if you listen to all those bands from back then, they really didn't sound alike. The Go-Go's didn't sound like X. The Blasters didn't sound like the yeah, Plimsolls. The Plimsolls didn't sound like the, the Weirdos. The Weirdos didn't sound like the Screamers. The Screamers didn't sound like Wall of Voodoo. You know, you could go down the list and they all sounded different. Uh-huh. And then when Hardcore came in, as great as Hardcore could be at times with Black Flag and all that, it kind of created a, 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 a divide between if you didn't play Hardcore you weren't playing punk. Right. And so what happened was by say 84 or so, uh-huh. it, it got figured out that, okay, who's a roots act, you know, who's right. a roots rock act, who's okay. a pop rock act, who's a, a punk rock act, you know? And so Dwight came along kind of around the time when it was, yeah, it was, it was roots rock, you know? Yeah. And okay. I gotcha. You know. And so would you have been like back in the day like pre that, like in the early, early eighties, um, mm-hmm. would you would you have been playing around LA like three, four, five times a week kind of thing? Or like what what sort of frequency could you actually do down there? Usually usually it, it usually you know, in the early, early days you could do like three 
Uh-huh. You know, but you pick different parts of town because it was so big. You know, you could right. play yeah. Santa Monica Club Bar in Santa Monica on Thursday night. You could play, then go to a bar in Long Beach on Friday night and then play a gig in Hollywood on a Saturday night. You know, you could, yeah. you could vary it up. But yeah, I mean, you could go see... You know, at the peak of the scene, you could go out just about any night of the week and hear somebody great, you know. And What uh, what were your favorite clubs to play in at that time? My favorite probably all in all was, you know, there was a club called the Starwood, and I loved Uh the Starwood. Um, That was like run by this gangster (laughs) named Eddie Nash. (laughs) Yeah. And as all the great music clubs of history have been run by gangsters. (laughs) But the way the club was set up, it actually kind of encouraged. It's a long story. It was it was a great hang. Let's just put it that way. And you could go there even when you weren't playing, and you could hang and talk to musicians because everybody, if they weren't playing, they would go to the Starwood or they'd go to the whiskey, you okay. know, to get drunk, to try to get laid, you know, to do yeah. whatever. But you yeah. could also you could also talk to the bass player from such and such band. And then you could talk to the, you know, you could talk to guys that were playing all the different types of music, whether it's punk rock or techno, you know, early, you know, electronic art music. You could all hang out and drink, get drunk together and then swap stories and, you know, share things. And Are you writing much these days? Like what's, what's next for you um, either on the, on a solo thing or with Phil? What, what are you going to be doing in the next little while? Well, we'll see. You know, I always keep things at a, on a we'll see basis. Um, uh-huh. Throughout my career, everything's been organic. Yeah. You know, like oh, this feels natural. You know, and so you kind of slide into that. Whether you know, like when I made an acoustic record on K in California, mm-hmm. it was just like it just felt natural. You know, right. and then then on later records of mine, like uh, Ashgrove or Eleven Eleven, gonna plug in and play loud again. You know, it's just match same notes. So I don't know, you know, the making the rec- the two records with my brother felt natural and felt like we needed to do this before we yeah. died. But I think after that, probably the next thing that'll happen, yeah, will probably be a Dave Alvin record. Because I'm going out on tour, like I said earlier, acoustic, doing yeah. a bunch of acoustic shows. And then in April, I'm doing a bunch of Dave Alvin shows with my band on right. the East Coast and in the Midwest. And, um, you know, and then uh, yeah, we'll see. That's will probably be a Dave Alvin record. And then another film with Dave, you know. Well, uh, thanks so much for talking to me today. You got it, All Steve. this stuff, man. I, I loved hearing these stories, and, and, you know, I'm such a fan of your work. And, and uh, when I started doing this podcast, you were literally the first person that I thought of. That And it's taken me a while to rope you in, but I'm so glad you agreed to do it and, and take the time today. I really appreciate it, man. Well, I hope you can edit it down to where I don't sound insane. So I appreciate it. <laughs> That was my conversation with Dave Alvin. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Please head over to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. And we'll see you next week for another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Music Makers and Soul Shakers is recorded at the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. Please visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. Thanks always to Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver for his help with research and to Michael Glusak for editing, music placement, and mixing.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 